Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboy and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. If you're familiar with our work, then you're probably also familiar with at least some of the work of Richard Epstein, legendary professor of law for a long time at the University of Chicago, and now also at New York University's Law School. Richard has written on virtually every legal subject under the sun, including modern administrative law. And this summer, he released his latest book, titled The Dubious Morality of Modern Administrative Law. On July 6th, Richard and I sat for a teleform hosted by the Federalist Society, where I interviewed him about the book, and then we took questions from the audience. As it happens, Richard and I have a podcast together called uh, Reasonable Disagreements, and I always enjoy my conversations with him, and this is no exception. If you're familiar with Richard, you know that Any of his presentations is an interesting and wide-ranging exploration of a variety of subjects. And again, this conversation is no exception. So I hope you enjoy it. Richard, welcome to the conversation. Well, it's very nice to be here. Well, yeah, let's talk about the the story of the book, so to speak. Let's start with the beginning of it. Obviously, there's a lot happening in administrative law these days, but things are always happening in all areas of law. Why did you settle suddenly upon this subject to write your latest book? Well, what spurred you to write it? Well, um, first of all, there was a, 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 an immediate institutional cause, and then there was an intellectual one. The institutional cause was that I was approached by Jim Copeland from the um, Manhattan Institute. He said, look, we would like you to write a short essay on the administrative law. I said, I've written a lot about this. He said, but we want you to sort of find an angle. And the question is, intellectually, why did you want to do that? And the answer is really amazingly simple. Everybody understands that administrative law now is at a potential tipping point. Uh, Throughout the Reagan years, even, there was kind of a rough consensus that the way in which the system ought to operate was a lot of deference to administrative agencies on a wide number of questions. Uh, It was pretty wide open with respect to delegation and so forth. And yet, when you started to look at the Supreme Court, it was very clear that first Neil Gorsuch, most notably, and also Judge Brett Kavanaugh, uh, we're having rather different thoughts on this. And so it was going to be pretty clear that many major cases were likely to come up on dealing with the subject. And uh, it would be, I think, important to talk about it. Then there's always a question when you write a book, do you have a foil? And in this particular case, I was especially blessed because two of my former colleagues, now at Harvard Law School, Adrian Bermule and Cass Sunstein, had written an article defending the morality of the modern administrative state, uh, referring to Lon Fuller, who wrote this great book of the morality of law back in 1964, in which what he did is he set out the sort of the minimum requirements, uh, procedural requirements for the rule of law to hold predictability, uniformity of rules, notice declines, and so forth. And they argued that uh, the basic modern administrative state with a little tugging and hauling fit within the fuller model. Uh, my view was that it did not. So essentially what you had is three ingredients to put this thing together. You had somebody who really wanted you to do this. It turns out it was a propitious time and there was a foil. And so you put all things together, you start writing. And then what you do is you realize that you can't cabin this particular thing uh, to a very small thing. And so this 10,000-word essay slowly morphed and became a book. And, and it's nice to understand why. Uh, like everything I write about, I have taught administrative law, environmental law, water law, FCC law, FDA law, all of which involve heavy administrative law. But, you know, I've taught so many things that I'm the jack of all trades and arguably a master of none. But I was extremely blessed, particularly with my research assistant, Nate Teaser, said, well, what about this case? And what about that case? And what about the other case? So by the time you're done, uh, this small book 
uh, became a very, uh, this small article became a real size book. And I was helped along by Jim Copeland, by Howard Dickman and so forth. And I was very pleased about the way in which it came out. And I'm certainly very thrilled to talk about it now. Now, you mentioned the uh, the Harvard Law Review article that was one of the things that spurred this, the one by Sunstein and Vermeule. I just want to note for the audience, as it happens, Sunstein and Vermeule's own book-length book treatment of the subject, it's, they called it uh, Law and Leviathan, Redeeming the Administrative State. That comes out in mid-September. With any luck, we'll get one or both of them back here for a Federalist Society teleform. But back to Richard's book. Richard, obviously there's a lot going on right now. In a nutshell, how should we understand uh, the modern administrative state? How should we think about uh, the prospects for reform? Well, I mean, as ever, when I do something, I always start at the beginning. And there's a kind of a standing joke that you and I have and that I have with many other people that you always start with Roman law. And it turns out Roman public law was not, shall we say, exhaustive on these topics, but it did have a bunch of maxims in it associated with you must hear the other side and you must have a neutral form and the rest of it. And so these kinds of procedural virtues carried through in the 19th century. And so the way in which the book is organized is I first give us an explanation as to why it is that I thought administrative law worked reasonably well up until the uh, progressive New Deal Reformation about 1937 and how it has gone off the rails. And I think it's a combination of two features. One of them is, I think, clearly substantive. Uh, what happens under these circumstances is that uh, the Office of Administrative Law in the earlier period is much more modest than it is today. And so what you did is you had a situation in which you did a large number of patent grants, a large number of land grants, a large number of employment contracts, both in the military and in the civil service. And so there was a pretty solid body of private law out there to which you could turn in order to figure out what you're going to do. And in fact, that's exactly the way the system started to work. Um, the judges were deferential, but they weren't judged deferential to any administrative decision. What they were deferential to was a course of dealing in a particular area, which had been followed very consistently. And so if it turned out that what you did is you had somebody come into court and said, look, I would like you to interpret this uh, clause in an employment contract in the following way. And there had been a uniform practice inside the agency that was responsible for it. Uh, the demand for special treatment was always uniformly and emphatically kind of rejected. And the theory was in the old administrative state is that custom actually worked. You had many, many small cases, had professional guys working these things one way or another. And that what would happen is you would slowly move and help you reach this kind of consensus. And custom became the opposite. Uh, when you got to the modern period, all of a sudden deference uh, in the hands of Justice uh, Stevens took exactly the opposite meaning. And the meaning that it undertook under those circumstances now said, look, if an agency decides to change its mind and to flip, we defer to the last decision of the agency, even if it turns out it deviates from the earlier decision. And note the consequences of the shift in the two views of deference. Under the older view, you get continuous evolution, but no sharp discontinuities. Under the newer view, every time you get a change in agency control, uh, this administration replacing that administration, uh, you can have the whole thing turned completely upside down. And that's exactly what happened in the Chevron case. There had been one set of determinations that had been made with respect to this issue under the Carter administration, and another set which had been made under the Reagan administration. And the issue was, uh, do we defer to the two agencies with inconsistent interpretations, or do we try to find some sense out of the particular language uh, which transcends the two? 
My view is that you always do the latter. There will certainly be difficult cases, and people have many arguments of what we mean by a point source and connection to Chevron. Uh, but as far as I can see, uh, what you always try to do is to make the best out of those particular claims rather than the worst out of it, rather than to say we can get all sorts of flip-flops, which then became memorialized in the Brand X decision that Justice Thomas handed down uh, some years later. And the earlier cases do not support the modern interpretation. Uh, but what they do is they essentially are a private law conception of how public administrative law should work. And Fuller, of course, was a noted contract scholar who believed in exactly that. And it's interesting that the most uh, damning condemnation that Fuller made of modern law was his uh, imposition of retroactive liability, which he said, by and large, were moral monstrosities. Those are his words, not mine. The only exception that he would have to that was a perfectly sensible one, an exception that applied in those particular cases, where it turned out that there was some curative statute that was needed to correct the glitch in some implementation of some legal system, a very narrow category and so forth. So that's the first part of this stuff, is that you have a methodology which is convivial to private law understanding. The second part of this situation is what's the objectives of administrative law? And in the 19th century, it was not, for the most part, a very grandiose or impressive system. What it wanted to do was to make sure that you got these grants correct, that you had tariffs and taxes correct, that the various roles that were put together to govern these things were put there. And so what you do is the area in which a lot of administrative law developed was in the law of tariffs. And so if you start thinking about the way in which the intelligible principle doctrine starts to develop from Chief Justice Tamp, what you do is you have a case in which the United States decides that it wants to impose tariffs on foreign goods to offset subsidies that are given to those goods uh, by, their, um, by their own nation. And it's a very precise principle that you start to use to calculate those tariffs are going to be. And what you can do is essentially use these things to offset it in order to create that kind of equilibrium. Now, I'm not defending the use of tariffs under these circumstances, uh, but that is certainly not a constitutional issue, given that tariffs are part of the Wharton Woof of all of American civilization. Uh, but what it was is it was the way in which when you put these things into that kind of a framework, uh, the situation started to work uh, very, very well. And what happens is once you get to the progressive era, all of a sudden you're doing really very much more ambitious systems rather than trying to calculate tariffs. And you know, if you start looking at the key decisions in administrative law on all of these issues, they all tend to take place right at the formation of the administrative state. 1937 is the constitutional um, uh, transformation. And then you get cases like NBC having to do with the way in which you allocate frequencies. And you have cases like Chenery, which talk about the authority of the SEC. And these goals are much more ambitious. So let me just talk about my favorite under this, which is Justice Frankfurt. He's a Harvard man, and he was very much a determined progressive. He sits on the Supreme Court. And as far as he's concerned, uh, the whole system has the following extremely attractive kind of characterization. Uh, what it does is it allows for administrative expertise to take over complicated matters and to bring to it a kind of precision that you cannot hopefully get, hope to get uh, through some kind of common law adjudication. 
And so uh, the famous illustration on this is he's now trying to figure out how you allocate the frequencies. And the statute, in effect, is one which talks about the public interest, convenience, and necessity. And these are the terms that drafted first in the Federal Radio Act and then carried over to the Federal Communications Act in 1934. And, you know, maybe you know what they mean, and I kind of think that I sort of know what they mean, but in truth, really nobody knows what, in fact, they start to mean. And so what happens is, and Frankfurter then meets the laissez-faire challenge in the following way. He says, there are some people who believe that the function of the government is simply to determine the rules of the road. He says, but I go much further, and I'm determined to, to, to basically have the government set the composition of the traffic. Well, the first of these tasks is relatively straightforward. Uh, you need to adapt standard exclusivity privately laws when you get to the spectrum, uh, because there's always going to be a little leakage back and forth. Um, in the spectrum, it's a peak, and then it kind of goes off in the sine curves. It kind of disappears, or rather, in a normal distribution. And what you have to do is you figure out how much interference you could tolerate at the margin. And essentially, as the system gets better, it turns out that the peaks get higher, and the level of interference starts to go down. And so what you can do is kind of build metrics for spacing. And then what you can do is within the frequency uh, that anybody has, you can allow them to subdivide it as they see fit. Because if they're not going to interfere with anybody else, they're certainly not going to interfere with each other. And slowly what you would do is you would get essentially a more and more intensive use of the spectrum in the way it went. But that's not what Frankfurter thought was correct. So you set the frequencies, you issue licenses, and then he says, oh, I'm going to tell the FTC, or the FCC, they got to figure out what the composition of the traffic is. And so for the next 17 years, what they do is they try to list the kinds of factors which would influence you to give to one particular applicant over another. And it turns out that the tests are infinitely malleable, uh, so that if you get two rivals, you could always change the way you give to any of these factors, and it really doesn't matter what they are, so that any result becomes defensible by an agency. At that point, you then have the question of judicial review. And if the system is so malleable, it turns out that there's really no way to say that you made a wrong decision unless there's some specific guideline that you get rid of. And so you develop a very strong culture of deference, but you have no idea whether the frequencies are well allocated or not. So what happens, CC, CC rather, CC, then says, oh, we have another rule, which says after the frequency is allocated, uh, the uh, recipient of the license can now sell it to somebody else who has to take subject to the same bulky conditions, at which point you now have an auction. But you've had this wasteful hearing to begin with, and none of the money goes to the government. So this is an absolutely crazy system. And it turns out that it was heavily attacked by people like Ronald Coase in dealing with all of these. Um, it turns out that what you do is you have this very complicated system uh, that is trying to work, and you can't make it go. And, and that's the sort of parable of the modern administrative state. You have these infinitely flexible, substantive kinds of arrangements, and it turns out that there's absolutely nothing you could do to implement them in an intelligent fashion, which then immediately gives rise to the older notion, go back to property rights, define them, and then have bids, which is what we do with respect to broadband. And so what happens is the administrative state, what does it have to do? It uses a test that's completely amorphous, 
because there's no narrow test that can cover the full range of circumstances, then it's indeterminate. And then what you do is you get a set of massive social inefficiencies on the one hand and a very powerful tradition of judicial deference on the other hand, except in some odd cases. Let me just give you one example, another one of my favorite cases. There is one thing that you cannot do when you have a license, which is you cannot basically sublicense it. So there's a famous case involving the Cosmopolitan uh, radio company or broadcasting company. And what it did is it said, we don't know whom to give this. And so we're going to basically divide it up into small slots and we'll sell them off to bits. So the Italians could take these, the Spanish could take these, the Chinese can take those. So essentially what you do is you introduce diversity into the system by subleasing. And Skelly Wright in 1978 said that's absolutely illegal. And they shut the station down. Why? Because it turns out you as the radio station had to make these choices, and this was regarded as an impermissible form of delegation. And so it's kind of episodes like that that happen over and over again in the modern administrative state, which come from the fact that when you have extremely broad substantive command that lack any kind of clarity, what you do in the end, almost in every one of these cases, is you have to develop a culture of deference to administrative decision because there's no system of right and wrong which will allow you to say you can't do it this way, you have to do it that way. That's a long answer, but I think it's the heart of the book. Well, obviously, and you mentioned the tariff the, the tariff situation uh, that dates back to one of the earliest statutes in the federal government's history. You know, from the very first Congress onward, we've seen Congress grapple with how to structure the departments and later agencies. We saw the predecessors to the modern independent agencies arising as early as the 1850s with the Steamboat Commission and then the Interstate Commerce Commission a few decades a few decades later. But let me just ask you at a very high level of generality: there's always going to be some vagueness in the statutes that Congress passes to govern technical uh, regulatory matters. It's almost, mm-hmm. unavoid- it's almost unavoidable for the reasons that James Madison said in Federalist 37. There's always some vagueness in law because law, or in, in law because written laws are, are written by, with an imperfect language by imperfect minds. And so there's always going to be some vagueness to be sorted out. The deference that we've seen in recent years, you referred to Chevron um, and mm-hmm. the doctrines that preceded it, We've had uh, various ways that judges have tried to grapple with that vagueness in regulatory statutes. You've you've mentioned Chevron. I guess to just cut to the chase, what would you propose in this book for uh, as an as the alternative to Chevron deference? Well, my view has always been the same. I take the same view with constitutional interpretation that I take the contractual interpretation to regulatory interpretation and statutory interpretation. Uh, their terms, generally speaking, have ordinary meanings, and for the most part. If you ever want to invoke a canon which starts to give deference to one side or another, it's basically going to be in clash with that particular principle, and it's going to create all sorts of trouble. Now, I do not want to say that if you use the, quote, ordinary meaning test or the plain meaning test, whatever you wish to do it, that every case is going to come out clear. But what happens is if you don't use it, then no case will start to come out clear. And the purpose in all of these circumstances is to figure out, essentially, can we get to it in a straightforward way? Where it turns out that you come up after every tool has been exhausted with a tie, then you might say, aha, there is a situation that we have to give uh, legislative deference or administrative deference. And in fact, if you look at recent cases, you can see exactly how this has gone. I mean, the first of the cases, one of the most dreadful decisions ever, in my mind, in administrative law, 
uh, was the Allen versus Robbins case in which Justice Scalia, on a very bad day, which he himself criticized later on, was trying to figure out who counts as an executive professional or administrative employee uh, for the purposes of the Fair Labor Standard Act. And this was absolutely critical uh, because if you fall into these categories, you are not subject to overtime regulations and minimum wages, where overtime is the much more important category when you're dealing with high-level workers. And nobody wants to doubt that a patrolman is, in fact, a kind of a none of these three, an EAP. Uh, uh, but if you start getting to sergeants and you start getting to office commanders, uh, what happened is Robert Rice, who was Secretary of the Labor, said these guys are not executives, even though they overrule a team, uh, because they're subject to punishment in the terms of demotion of one kind or another if they make some sort of mistake. And that's a characteristic which also applies to line workers who essentially are not found uh, to have forfeited their minimum wage protection when they're docked a few dollars or pennies or whatever it is when they mess up with respect to some of the production units. And you know, this is just looking at one feature of a case, completely different what the promotion structure is and the penalty structure is for offices. And then he says, well, I can subject them to uh, this situation. That's not ordinary language. And it turns out that we just simply take out a book and look at the description of the jobs uh, that are given to basically district commanders to lieutenants and to platoon leaders, they all ooze of administrative oversight and so forth. And so what Justice uh, Scalia did in the Allen case was he looked at this one little weird feature of the overall situation, and then what he did, after all that was done, he said, that's the only thing I care about, and he never bothered to look at the standard definition. I mean, I've done a lot of contract law in my life, and one of the things that I think is important to understand is that the mentality that often takes over interpretation of language in all of these areas finds some impossibly difficult case that makes it to the Supreme Court, comes out five to four, and then that's treated as representative of the way in which language works as a whole. And that is just plain false. When you draft these languages, you use a kind of evolution. You start with something, it's pretty clear. A glitch comes in and somebody drafts the clause in order to fix it. And so there are two kinds of ambiguities, Adam. One of them is irreducible ambiguity, which no amount of language can correct. So if you look at somebody and you have to decide whether or not he's bald, there will always be cases of people who are partially balding, uh, where you're not quite sure which side of the bald, non-bald line are. And in ordinary language, you say, well, he's largely bald. But if you have a statute which requires bald men to wear hats and non-bald men not to wear it, you don't have the luxury of continuity. You have to draw a sharp line. Amen, brother. But if it turns out that you have what HOA Hart called open texture, that is, there's ambiguity in a particular clause as to whether or not, for example, a mineral includes oil or whether it only includes hard substance. If you get it wrong the first time, uh, you can correct that by statute and make sure that either the oil and gas in or out from the mineral and get rid of it. And that's the way in which the trust of draft contract accepted. But what it is is this kind of contract situation where everybody takes the standard form, upgrades it for errors, and then codifies it or modifies it for their own particular case. And that's a much more way in which to sort of think about the law. When I start looking at a number of cases, it turned out that perhaps the one case which is kind of really a little bit tricky is Chevron itself, uh, because it's asking the questions, what's the source? And there's always the question, is half a source is source? Just the way there's the question whether half a heap is a heap. Well, for me, the correct answer in that case is you start looking at industry practice and you ask yourself, well, what would be the appropriate unit for analysis if you're worried about trying to control emissions? And if it turns out you've got a plant with 10 smokestacks, 
all of which are within five feet of one another. It would be odd to say each cell smokestack is a separate source subject to separate regulation. You treat the plant or the basic facility as that. And certainly you don't want to say, oh, well, here's a smokestack. But if you look at it, it has three different separate flues in it, and each of those should be treated as a separate source. And so what you do is you then start looking at standard practice within the industry to get that kind of evidence. And that's not at all what Justice Stevens did. He spread the one section, which was, I thought, perfectly clear or reasonably clear. He said, but this term is used somewhere else in a different context. And what he did is he did the fundamental sin of statutory or contractual interpretation. Is he manufactured ambiguity when it turned out there was no reason for him to do so. And, and so I think, in effect, if you start with the right frame of mind, uh, the number of cases that are going to fall into this sort of difficult category become relatively small. And uh, the others will be faithful, subject to relatively clear stuff. And you do not want to sort of make your general judicial administrative law philosophy depend on odd, quirky cases. Uh, you want to look at a thousand cases and you look at case after case after case. And the judges said, well, here's the plain meaning of this particular statute and nobody can test them. Because what they're worried about under the circumstances is whether it's valid or not. So if you look at all the antitrust laws, it's pretty clear what is a tie-in arrangement, what's an exclusive dealing arrangement, what's a resale price maintenance. The question is not whether you have those kinds of arrangements. It's not. The question is whether or not you think that they have efficiencies that outweigh their restrictive practices or the reverse, uh, which is not a definitional question. It's an analytical question on which you can have, obviously, a very different kinds of disputes. But I think the single biggest flaw of most modern lawyer philosopher time is they overestimate indeterminacy with respect to language. I think if you actually are more philosophically inclined on that, the miracle of language is not the few cases in which communication breaks down. It's the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of cases in which all of us uh, are able to communicate almost effortlessly with one another, even to the point where we agree, oh my God, all language is so indeterminate, we can't possibly know what it means, and we have a perfect understanding of what that phrase is. I mean, language works on a day-to-day -day basis because usually we're not trying to pin down with absolute pinpoint precision the mm -hmm. precise boundaries of each term we're using. And then most of our casual conversations don't involve the degree of economic or policy mm -hmm. stakes that were at stake in, say, Chevron. You know, one of Justice Scalia, his, for all those years that he was defending Chevron deference against critics on both the left and the right, uh, his concern was that uh, you needed Chevron deference's framework to prevent or to minimize the, the, the room that judges would have to micromanage consequential policy questions that Congress had committed really to agencies rather than courts. And this is a point that uh, Ted Hurt raises in, in, in his review of, of the book, this, this risk that if we push judges to decide more cases or issue more regulatory cases for themselves without any kind of deference framework, elections will have much, much fewer consequences on questions of administration. And instead, we'll get back to the days where, and Ted doesn't say this, but, but Scalia would, uh, we'll get back to the days of Skelly Wright um, micromanaging the Nixon administration and Ford administration and Reagan administration uh, agency. Well, I don't agree with that. I mean, there are many steps. 
go the other way. Talbot Cliss is, of course, the classic illustration of Skelly Wright going off the deep end and starting to create private rights of action in a legal system where the statute itself doesn't require it. Um, and, you know, I'm not in favor of doing anything of that particular sort. And let me, for the audience, sort of explain what was at stake and how it was that the very ingenious uh, D.C. court, the fearsome foursome in the 1970s, Skelly Wright, David Bassalon, Paul McGowan and Harold Leventhal managed to completely upend the nuclear industry. What they did is they seized on any particular confusion or ambiguity and used that as a wholesale source to change the system. So in Calvert Quist, what happened is we had NEPA, a statute which is now very much under attack and under review. And what it did is it required that the agency... Uh, before it entertained a private or a public project on public lands, like the building of a nuclear power plant, would start to take information and get opinions. And so, you know, in the standard policy, you start listening to everybody, folks come in, and then the agency starts to make up its mind. And this is not illegitimate in any sense, because that's exactly what the statute empowers it to do. But what Skelly Wright did is he says, you know what? I really want to welcome a flood of litigation. So I'm going to allow anybody who disagrees with the consensus opinion inside the agency to challenge it in court. Well, that decision completely changes the structure of administrative law, in my view, a completely illegitimate fashion. Because what it means is the only people who are going to dissent are going to be the outliers, right? And once they decide to come in, nobody else really starts to matter. And then you get the fly specking that constantly takes place under that statute. Um, and so that what happens is the tiniest confusion, which is better handled downstream, is now forced into an immediate agency decision where disclosures have to do everything. And Harold Leventhal, when he talked about all of this, the statutes were pretty clear that what you had to disclose generally under these various things were the basic aims of the statute, had to give people what it is that you would like to get hearings about. And he says, well, we don't want to take this literally, i.e., we are lawless. And what he meant by that, he said, well, you may just tell us that this is what we're looking at, but we would like to see every reference and have every reference explained in terms of the ultimate conclusion. And what happened is, if you remember in Vermont Yankee, uh, the Supreme Court actually blew up at that. It stopped some portion of this, but the, the, the campaign kept on going on. What's the consequence of this? Well, when you start having that kind of review of agency behavior, but just today, the Atlantic pipeline was abandoned, and they're going to sell off the company, all of its assets to Buffett, uh, because of just one administrative flaw after another. And is this sensible under the statute? No. And, you know, you start looking at some of these other statutes. It, it's really a very interesting thing. Uh, you take something which is extremely complicated and controversial, like the Army Corps of Engineers. And I've actually gone back and read some of the reports that they wrote on approving various kinds of nuclear power plants. And frankly, they're excellent. I mean, these guys really understand the nature of this business. They are pretty thorough in the consideration of what's going on. And yet somehow or other, uh, there's always some sort of nitpicking that can take place. So that in the end, we now have developed a structure of administrative law with this kind of romance that has taken place by judges not consistent with the text of the statute, I might add. So we haven't built a new nuclear power plant in the United States since 1977, and it's likely that we're never going to be able to build any of these things. And so I think, Adam, it is extremely important to know uh, that just because you take the ordinary language view of the world, simple as I am, doesn't mean uh, that judges can do whatever they want. Administrative deference is sometimes extremely abusive, but so as many cases is judicial intervention on the top. So it's 
it's, it goes everywhere. To give but another illustration, I thought that Justice Gorsuch wrote one of the worst opinions imaginable when he managed to give an interpretation to Title VII that nobody who had ever had anything to do with the statute at the time of his passage would even understood to be a serious question. It's not textualism to come up with a theory of language uh, that imposes upon a text a meaning that none of the participants to it understood, when in fact uh, you could figure out what they said and it's perfectly consistent with the plain text of the statute. So, I mean, I agree that there are all sorts of problems under these particular cases, but if this constant fake sophistication on how it is that you read the words of a statute that get you into trouble. Now, there's another point I should mention here, which is statutory construction is not just a question of linguistic meaning. Uh, going back to the Roman tradition and through the medieval tradition, everybody understood that statutes were subject to a series of implied exceptions that were read in unless they were explicitly ruled out. And these were very detailed in terms of the way in which they went. So if you take the lexicality of the Roman statute with respect to the law of torts, the word inuria was an open invitation for people to figure out, well, what do you do with necessity? What do you do with defense? What do you do with trespass? What do you do with privilege? What do you do with assumption of risk? And they simply worked through all of those things as a matter of first principles. And that's the way in which when you interpret modern statutes like the takings clause uh, that you really have to do. Uh, so it's important to understand not only can you have ordinary meaning, um, but you also have to understand that there are cases in which uh, the full construction of a particular statute requires that you understand the generalized terms. And in order to do that, you have to be much more historical in terms of the way in which these norms of interpretation have evolved. They were amazingly constant all the way through the New Deal period. And what happens is they get disregarded in favor of just a mishmash of ad hoc kinds of considerations, which lead to, uh, shall we say, a decline, not only in administrative law, but also in contractual interpretation and so forth. You can see the same kind of silliness sometimes taking place when you hear Justice Trainer talking about, well, there's no fixed meaning in any language, so parole evidence is entitled to be introduced into every case in which you want to do it. So this is a more endemic problem. And again, I want to say this is a phrase from H.L.A. Hart, who I thought was pretty much sensible on this point, though wrong on many things. He said, you've got to avoid the nightmare, which is that everything is open-ended. You have to avoid the noble dream, which is that everything is completely precise. Uh, but what happens is if you have a sensible interpretation and try to work these things, most of these cases will come out reasonably well. And we don't want to embrace either of the two poles of interpretation, and we don't want to engage in, shall we say, some sort of imagination of the sort that took place in Calvert's cliff when it came to trying to figure out uh, the way in which the NEPA statute was worked. It was hijacked, in fact, and the consequences of that hijacking are still very much with us today, and they're all for the worst. I have just one last question to ask before we open it up to uh, to, the, to the floor. But uh, Richard, just one last question for, from me. Um, you cover so much ground in this book. We can't. We, we we're not able to begin to even touch on most of it in this conversation. Everything from non-delegation to deference to guidance documents to factual findings and even things I, I noticed one one issue that didn't get quite as much treatment in the book. But you I really commend uh, to the audience your essay a few years ago for National Affairs on government by waiver. I mean, there's just so many issues that that you've raised in, in your work on, on on this. I hate to I hate for you to, to to pick the least favorite of all of your children, so to speak. But if there was if you could just pick one issue that you think is the most in need of the fastest reform by the courts or Congress or the agencies themselves, which one issue would you pick? 
God, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I would probably stick with everybody else and would start to talk about the interpretation questions, ordinary meaning, statutory deference, and so forth, because it's absolutely ubiquitous across all of these things. But there's something else I want to say about how you do this. One of the things about this is that I always say in virtually everything I write, I'm an outsider to administrative law because I teach it not only as administrative law, but as par and parcels of other courses. And one of the central themes of my book is that if you start looking at these cases, you really can't talk about whether you got it right in Chenery unless you know something about how securities are organized. You can't figure out what's going on in uh, Skidmore uh, having to do with deference to respect and labor regulations unless you understand how overtime will start to work. And the same thing with the FCC. And so what happens is I think that the reform that you need in terms of judges is they really have to commit themselves to understanding the statutory scheme as a substantive matter before they start to reminisce about the administrative overlay with respect to it. And I think that this is a real danger in the public law curriculum that we have today, in which public law is treated as sort of wholly separate from and independent of all private law considerations. If you've known, I've always stressed the, con the continuity and the connections between the two of them at every particular level. And I fear that the decline of private law in American law schools today and the decline and interest in it among scholars is going to lead to a kind of a situation where people will be super expert on the various presumptions, Chevron 1, Chevron 2, this kind of deference, that kind of deference, without knowing anything about how it is a labor statute starts to work. And so in terms of the doctrine, I think Chevron is probably the place I would start first. Uh, the other one I would do is State Farm. Why is that? Because it turns out on factual questions, we don't have one standard, we have two standards. And I think it's unsustainable. If somebody wants to challenge a particular finding by the administrative agency, we tend to fly spec and say, oh, if you consider something that's irrelevant or didn't consider something that's relevant, you're going to be in deep trouble. And with complicated schemes, it means it's a setup to fail. But on the other hand, if it turns out that the agency declines the prospect and you as an applicant want to challenge it, then it's pure rational base. If there's any one good reason that does this, all the other reasons on the other side don't matter. And it cannot be that you have that kind of asymmetry, uh, which then gives much too much power uh, to the challenges of these agencies and much too much power to the agencies when private developers or government uh, are there. Uh, you don't want to have a situation in which there's this built-in anti-development bias into the system, which is the way in which uh, State Farm has been construed. So uh, that would be uh, my short-term riff on this issue. Well, thanks, Richard. Uh, Dean, should we open the floor? Yeah, let's turn now to our first caller, right here in Washington, D.C. Go ahead, caller. Hello. Uh, I'm a practitioner of, a, of a regulatory law, and I have been impressed over the years by how unbelievably complex some statutes are, like the Medicare statute, for example. It's uh, unconstruable in any objective way. Um, by um, a judge who has not spent years and years perusing it. And I was um, interested in your statement, Professor Epstein, uh, before that if there's really, really, really a doubt as to the meaning of the statute, then the agency should be given Chevron-type deference. Uh, I hope I did not misunderstand you on this point. But uh, instead of giving the agency deference, why not adopt 
a rule of uh, construction that if there's doubt as to the meaning of the statute, the default goes to freedom. In other words, against the deprivation of life, liberty, or property, unless the statute clearly requires that. In other words, turn Chevron around entirely. Why not adopt that? Well, I mean, look, as a normative matter, I'm all with you, which would mean that I would strike down half of these statutes on exactly that kind of a ground. But I don't think that we're dealing here with a blank face. That is, I think, you know, and I've written, I regard the National Labor Relations Act as unconstitutional. I regard much of Medicare as unconstitutional. But at least... I'm not talking about striking them down. No, I understand. But if I can strike them down, and the statutes themselves don't have a presumption of liberty built in favor of them, then as a matter of construction, I don't think you superimpose that upon the statute, which starts with exactly the opposite situation. And so if you were trying to figure out, for example, what the word coercion means in terms of the National Labor Relations Act, it's clear that the statute does not work if you say it only means the threat or the use of force against another individual or a breach of contract. So the statute basically starts with an assumption about certain kinds of inequality of bargaining powers so that office to workers are essentially going to be regarded as threats if it undercuts the position of the union. I regard those as correct interpretive matters. So my view about this is you can't use that to salvage a statute, which is so irremediably considered uh, committed to exactly the opposite position. And that if you're trying to play the game of ordinary meaning, uh, this is essentially going to be a thumb on the wrong side of the scale. Now, it also turns out that uh, you're right about this, and you know, you, sometimes these statutes are completely unintelligible and you don't know what to do. Well, here's what I think you have to say. is um, I'm not going to give deference to either side. Uh, but if the practitioners like you in the government and in the private sector have worked on this thing for years, it's a function of good briefing in, and work by amicus parties as well uh, to sort of explain which way you think these things ought to come out. And I think one of the reasons we've seen the rise in the use of amicus curiae briefs in recent years is exactly what you can do. Uh, that huge level of complexity is so great that the parties can't cover all the issues so what they do is they rope in their friends and they each pick up one particular piece in order to do it. This is a strong argument in favor of simplification of the statutes. I did write a book called Simple Rules for a Complex World. I still devoutly believe in the proposition, but I have to say in the modern administrative state where the ends are so diffuse, it turns out that it's a pipe dream to think that that particular maxim is going to get us through the statutory construction question. Okay, next question. Um, Richard, while we wait to see if somebody else rings in, I don't know if Adam has another question, but I, I'll ask you about the the enormity of, of the administrative state and the number of rules. You just mentioned that you might need several amicus briefs just to explain a, a, a regulatory provision or, or a provision in a statute, and that's just one sliver of what somebody in the regulated community has to comprehend and act under on a daily basis. Do you want to speak to the the vastness of, of the administrative state and the regulatory regimes and and then throw on top of that guidance? I mean, how is somebody in this world uh, supposed to comply with the law, even if they're inclined to do that? Look, I mean, the reason we have this huge degree of ambition or complexity is we have a huge degree of ambition. So, for example, you take something like the Obamacare statute. Um, it literally is designed to try to figure out how you rework the entire provision of, 
of services in an industry which is, say, you know, one-fifth or one-sixth of the total size of the economy at large. Uh, there's just no easy way in which you can start to do that. And what we do is we have different kinds of programs. We have certain kinds of programs where essentially the government specifies the kinds of services that are going to be given and the payments that are there. The moment you do that, everybody understands that a physician or a hospital group is going to try to figure out a way to gain the particular statute uh, so as to be able to uh, manage to get themselves the largest possible payment under. Uh, the government agency understands that, and then what it tries to do is to develop some kind of a countermeasure on this particular situation. And then what happens is another round in which people go on. So that's one of the problems is just that game. Take another problem. You put together in some of these statutes ambitions that you have nowhere else in the law. So in that you do the question exactly what it is that you want to cover in these kinds of statutes in terms of the private plan. And, you know, what I would have said is an upper bound is as follows. If you find a provision of a particular benefit, which is found in no private plan anywhere on the face of the globe, it's a very strong argument. The government ought not to mandate that you put those kinds of services into a government plan. You have no private references to believe to work off of, and you have no particular reason that the demand for this thing is going to be worth its cost. But the moment that this thing came to the list of essential benefits under regulation, they went in exactly the opposite direction. And all of a sudden now what you do is you have these very powerful things coming in there and nobody knows how to price them. At which point you then start having all sorts of other kinds of complications. So you can do a much better job within the regulatory framework if you're attentive to the fact that you have some information that you could derive from private markets. But this is never accepted, as far as I can tell, in these government circles, because the whole premise behind the Obamacare situation was that all private plans in some sense fail. And so the president, in what I thought was a spectacular display of ignorance on the topic, announced that all, all these plans are really quite terrible. Um, they just don't give you the kind of protection that every American needs. And so that essentially denounced the private don't use it as a benchmark, instead use it as a target of criticism. But the point that I would want to make is that these voluntary arrangements, having been worked out over years with constant modification in one direction or another, basically are probably have much better implications than some agency which has no particular experience of how these things go on the ground, on the way in which they ought to be put into place. And so it's a kind of institutional hubris that drives them uh, to give the expansions, then there are the cost pressures that come on. Uh, then what you do is you start trying to retrench and cut back. Uh, the payments provisions become absolutely crazy under these circumstances. And so it goes back to the point that I originally mentioned. Uh, the difficulties you get in the modern administrative state come from the fact that you have a level of ambition in what you're trying to achieve, which was utterly unheard of in the 19th century version. 19th century administrative law did not give rise to any of the kinds of problems that we have today, 20th century administrative law, 21st century administrative law, these problems are built into the warp and woof of the entire system. We do have one question pending. Let's check in with our next caller. And we do have a question after this next caller. Go right ahead, caller. Hi, uh, I'm Selena Colares from Cleveland, Ohio. Quick question for Professor Epstein. Uh, how much of your argument um, on the uh, immorality of the modern administrative state is is or can be uh, 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 is reducible?
applicable, I guess, to your uh, view that a lot of the problem with agencies interpreting, which is in- inevitable, uh, is a factor or is a, a function of of the fact that the agencies are dealing with either the APA or very broad statutes, and they often and, and the courts often lack information that is policy specific. And then what you have is call it, is courts deferring to agencies because they don't have that policy specific knowledge, but agencies do. And then what you see is a process where agencies that ends up being run by agencies in terms of uh, uh, courts have become dissociated from engaging in interpretations enriched by uh, and driven by policy. My question to you is, if this is a if this is a correct depiction of what your criticism is, would perhaps uh, splitting uh, uh, administrative law into different courts, into different subject matter courts, like in trade, my area of expertise, would perhaps splitting, uh, creating subject matter specific federal courts for different administrative regulatory areas, domains, would that perhaps alleviate your concerns? I'm strongly in favor of that proposal, but I stress the word court. Uh, that is, what happens is uh, there's no question that taxation is tough, patents are tough, international trade is tough, and the creation of Article I courts, giving you a series of expert judges in those particular areas, I think in many cases a perfectly salutary development. There was an objection based upon the fact that Article Three courts seemed to be exclusive under the basic uh, the reason why that never held was the particular interaction between uh, administrative courts of the Article I variety um, and Article III, uh, attention that arose before any call, anybody called attention to the difference. So if you go back to the Murray's Lessee against the city of Hoboken, a tax collection case, it turned out the reason why the court was very reluctant to strike down the Supreme Court and Article I court uh, was that it well knew that these kinds of Article I courts dealing with customs disputes had been in full operation for about 35 years and nobody had challenged them. And so what happened is they became kind of prescriptively entitled. And I think that that's not a bad thing. And then I think most people institutionally came to the further conclusion that you've been trying to figure out one of the major constitutional difficulties in the organization of our judicial system. Uh, the notion of life tenure for Article Three judges is an institutional and structural mistake. It's perfectly unambiguous in the statute, but it's a mistake. And so if you've got this historical line for Article One courts, I'm told today that virtually everybody who proposes a new kind of court uh, proposes as an Article One court taking advantage of the custom rather than working with the statute. And the line of tension between custom and text is a very powerful one that pervades administrative law. Uh, the thing that I truly object to, however, has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the notion that you're going to allow the adjudicative function to be put into the hands of the administrative agency uh, that turns out to be in charge of both creating the rules and then bringing enforcement action. And the Supreme Court had two recent cases on this. I'll mention them briefly. Uh, one was the oil states case in which it was held that the PTAB, the Patent Trial and Appeals Board, could essentially adjudicate challenges after its patents had been issued. 
The 19th century cases, most notably a case called McCormick, decided in 1898, was emphatic in the opposite direction. Uh, that once you have made a permanent grant, uh, the question of its validity or its invalidity is to be adjudicated, as it is with any other grant inside a court. Uh, but the Supreme Court today makes light of the separation of powers issues, and it put it into the hands of an agency. And before it was recently uh, cleaned up, there were one kind of administrative outrage after another in terms of the group process collections that he's given, including the power of the head of the PTAP to appoint those particular judges to a particular case whom he thought would give a ruling favorable to what outcome he particularly wanted, which to my mind is an absolute violation of everything that Lyon Fuller stood for when he was talking about adjudication. And then there was the case of Mr. Lucia, who was essentially hounded out of business uh, by the SEC over some public presentations he made. It turned out they did this before an administrative judge who was a social security expert who had convicted everybody who had been brought before them. And one little detail that was just told to me recently about this case by a lawyer who worked on it is if you wanted to testify on behalf of the uh, person who was being charged, Mr. Lucia, you had to submit all of your financial records to the government for the last five years so they could figure out what it is they wanted to do with you. Uh, nobody in a court would ever require that. And what the Supreme Court did was exactly the wrong thing. Uh, they said, oh, there is an appointments clause difficulty here because we're not sure that the head of a particular agency made the appointment. That doesn't cure anything because what you do is you figure out who the appropriate head is and then you reappoint everybody with the right paperwork, leaving the due process argument completely unresolved uh, with these kinds of results. So the correct answer under the modern system is, oh, yes, there's a real difficulty in figuring out which agencies ought to be independent, which agencies should be executive. And if you're trying to figure out how you sort out the commingling of administrative and legislative stuff, um, it seems to me you're never going to be able to find out a sensible way in which to do that. But I think it's perfectly clear that the adjudicative function should never, ever be in the hands of an agency which has either rulemaking or enforcement powers, but must be either in a general court or in an Article I court. And indeed, in many cases, like in Paris, you go to Article I court, sometimes those judges do a perfectly good job. I mean, I do believe, I mean, that judges, when properly briefed on a particular case, who are conscientious and are trying to get things right, can do better than we sometimes think. So, yes, I do favor, in some cases, um, so I would say specialized courts. Uh, but I'm always impressed uh, that the more serious that the judges in Article Three courts take their task, the better the work they do. So in certain areas, like in labor relationships, the so-called claims about expertise are really nothing more than claims that basically take uh, certain kinds of contractual provisions and to torture them in an agency if it turns out that you're either pro-Republican or pro-Democrat, depending on which particular party happens to be in power at any given time. We've got about two or three minutes remaining. Let's see if we can get this final question and one question pending. Hi, uh, this is Neil Tilson from Washington, D.C. Uh, Professor Epstein, congrats on the new book. I can't wait to read it. Um, much of the administrative state that you've discussed involves complex rulemaking regimes like those at the FCC or the EPA. And I'm curious uh, from my, some personal background, how you think about agencies like the Federal Trade Commission, which are largely enforcement-driven, case-by-case application of what is undoubtedly an extremely broad and vague statute. Is the morality of such agencies less dubious or more dubious? 
I just oh, want to add that uh, Neil is Neil is being. I just want to add that Neil's being modest. He was the former chief technologist for the FTC. Go ahead, Richard. Well, I mean, look, I, you're not being modest. I mean, that's an extremely important question. Right now, literally on my desk, I'm trying to write up something about the Qualcomm decision, which was brought in the waning days of the administration. And it was brought by the FCC, and it turns out the Department of Justice in a public dispute is on the exact opposite side of the case. I did work from time to time with Qualcomm on some of those issues, and I'm strongly inclined in its particular direction. I think, in effect, on that particular circumstances, I know of no effective way, apart from strong judging, to control prosecutorial discretion. Um, and I say this with deep regret, uh, because Chevron, non-Chevron, nothing is going to stop that. Because as you know as well as I do, the power to investigate in many cases is the power to destroy. And um, you start an investigation on January 17, 2017, when you're out of office or in the IBM case, you do it on January 19th or whatever it was, on the last days of, I guess it was the Johnson administration, um, you're asking for trouble. But the only cure for that is strong Article Three judges. I mean, I and if you get the right personnel, somehow these things get handled correctly. You get the wrong personnel, who knows? I mean, one of the things I think that both of us would agree is that if you actually look at the kinds of people who serve on the federal court, the range of abilities and temperaments and expertise it varies enormously judged by judge. And one of the reasons why it's so difficult to get some kind of good institutional generalization on controlling this stuff is you never know from one end of the day to the end whether you're going to get a judge who's absolutely super or whether you're going to get a judge who is in, in many ways just not equal to the particular task. And that is just a fact of life. Um, judges are not of equal ability and not of equal temperament. And then, of course, I think the other thing that we have to say today with increasing polarization coming and taking place, um, where virtually most judges now, it's understood that they're going to be 40 dissenting votes the moment that judge walks into court. Uh, you're going to see an even more difficult situation to start the hand. And this means ultimately the point that I started with is if you have huge substantive ambitions, which are not subject to constitutional constraints, uh, then trying to control that in the second best method through the administrative state will get you some of the things that you have to get done, but you'll never be able to stop those particular problems. If you're Felix Frankfurt and you think that you know how to allocate the spectrum, and if it turns out you're the head of the Medicare Association and you think you know how to allocate everything having to do with health care, uh, that kind of conceit is going to be very, very difficult to stop by any set of formal administrative rules. So I think the long-term project is one of a downward spiral unless we reverse ourselves on the largest substance question of what it is that we think suffering for. Okay? Well, thank you, Richard, for all that. Thanks to the audience for their questions. 